Y'all, dude is going to read you a scripture, okay? Y'all turn with him to Matthew. Going to be in the 26th chapter and the 12th verse. Ready? Okay, Judah, go, baby. She poured this perf- perfume on my body. She did did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world that she has done what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Amen. Okay, this morning is Sunday, May 7th. Our message has somewhat of a provocative title, and my wife made me water it down to make it more church-like. It was going to be, Let's Get Naked. Now it's become, Take Off Your Clothes. Is that better? Take Off Your Clothes? No? Not much better? She accused me of having a song lyric that we heard on the radio in my head, but I promise that's not it. Turn with me to Isaiah 20. Cassidy wants to rework the message title again to remove your outer garment. Tell me when y'all get to Isaiah 20. Can y'all hear me okay? I don't like not having the lapel mic, but you know what? We are going to praise God anyway. Hallelujah. Naked and not ashamed. I'm just going to call y'all at the beginning of the week and say, hey, what should I uh, call these messages? Who's in Isaiah? All right, the message title this morning is Take Your Clothes Off. See how well I take instruction? (laughs) Take your clothes off. In Isaiah 20, we see a very short chapter. I want to introduce a topic that I intend to be funny and hopefully somewhat thought-provoking. How many of you feel called to the prophetic ministry? (laughs) Wow, you'll be happy you raised your hands. Listen to what God requires of His prophets. In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it, at that time, The Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, Take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Now I know some of you in here read the New American Standard. Is that true? Are there a few of you in here that read the New American Standard? This New American Standard puts it in such an interesting way. It says, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips, and take the shoes off your feet. And he did so, going around naked and barefoot. When you look at the commentaries and what they all have to say, they all put this so delicately. Some say, oh, well, he had a cloak that was a prophetic mantle, and that's what he took off. But he was fully clothed from the waist down. Others say, no, he just removed one outer garment and he had clothes on everywhere. One even said, whatever condition he was in, he only was this way for three days. Isn't this interesting? Well, keep reading in your NIV. Then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot, or as the New American Standard says, naked and barefoot, for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, So the king of Assyria will lead away, stripped and barefoot, the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old, with, uh uh-oh, 
buttocks bared to Egypt's shame. It's funny, when we read something uncomfortable in the Scripture, when you read something that just doesn't fit quite within your religious framework, we do everything that we can to interpret it away, explain it away. It's shocking to people that God would have a man named Isaiah do something in his life that was humiliating. Whether you believe this was just an outer garment or whether you believe this was just a cloak, whatever it is that you would like to believe about it, the whole point was that they would see Isaiah and realize that their buttocks were going to be exposed and that it would be shameful to them. Now, there's a long message you can teach about why. This happens around 700 B.C. Sargon is, in fact, one and the same with a man named Sennacherib who is bent on conquest all over the Middle East. He's not yet marched on Hezekiah's kingdom, but he's going to. Ashdod is the western side of Israel near the sea. It would be a good place to enter. Israel was clinging at this time to two foreign kingdoms, Cush, which is Ethiopia, and uh, Egypt, also the same area. They were leaning on them as people who would be allies that would help them fend off this foreign invader. God sent the prophet to Israel to walk around naked and barefoot for three years and says, oh, your allies that you're placing trust in, this is what's going to happen to them. Whatever it is that we put our trust in besides God has got to be laid bare in our lives. Now, the ironic thing is it took a man of God being obedient, being willing to be humble for three years to get this message to the people. Isn't that interesting? And your conception of what God will and won't do in your life, does it include that He would expose you and show things about you that are humbling or humiliating in order to get you to put more trust in Him? That's a difficult concept, isn't it? That's not how you build big churches and gymnasiums and large youth groups preaching about those kind of things. message this morning is take your clothes off. Well, is it really that I just wanted to talk about something provocative? Or could God have a different message for us? Turn with me to Micah. Y'all read Micah, right? Hopefully. It's a minor prophet. If you get to Daniel and hang a right, you'll do well. You get to Malachi, you went too far. Go back to the left. Tell me when you're there. Wait, 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 y'all said. Who's in Micah? Last week we talked a little bit about the Ten Commandments. Anybody work on those this week? If I call on you, can you name them? Mm. That would be being stripped and naked in here if I asked you to do that, huh? In front of all of your friends. They were important enough for God to show up in fire on a mountain to change the inclination of our heart. Perhaps we should learn them. I was raised in Louisiana. They have a different order to the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? To take emphasis off of you shall not have any idols or make any graven images, they combined it with the first commandment. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Well, it seems that they were given that right by Rome. Are you all in Micah 1? In Micah 1, starting in verse 8, how about this one? Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. 
for her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. Micah is prophesying at a time period where it becomes evident to him that Israel is going into captivity. He said, man, this hurts so much, I'm going to get naked and wail and moan. And that everybody will hear me and everybody will see me. And his book is about Israel going into captivity and being restored. Would God really tell somebody to do that, though? Well, he did Isaiah. Micah did it. Flip back to 1 Samuel. These are all prophets, right? Remember I asked you who wanted the prophetic ministry? Anybody have a sword in here? How'd you like to shave your head with one of those? That's not what we're going to read about. This morning's message is take your clothes off. In 1 Samuel 19, starting in verse 23, So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He was stripped off his robes. I'm sorry, he stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all that day and night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Kind of a strange anointing, huh? The Spirit of God comes upon this guy and he takes off his kingly robes. He gets bare before the Lord in his presence. Now, in general, nakedness in the Bible is something that is not a good thing. You do everything. Even Paul says, we don't long to be naked. We long to be clothed. That's 2 Corinthians 5. So why are these guys naked? Turn with me to Mark real quick. I'll read you one more naked scripture, then we'll change the subject for a while. Some of you are surprised this is in the Bible, huh, Judah? Yeah. Why would God include details like that in the Word? Well, you could do what some do, baby. You could grow up and learn just to explain it away, pretend it's not there. Or we could deal with that which is humiliating and humbling in our lives and see a greater purpose in it. Y'all in Mark 14? I'm curious, what does verse 51 say? A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. You ever had something happen so important in your life, it just couldn't wait for you to get reclothed? You find out it's a blessing. This man only had a linen garment. It was easier to get him naked. Said, Golly, you're a preacher. What are you talking about? What's all this nakedness? Let's see if we can get into the heart of it. Turn with me to John 11. This not be a message that you want to get up and run out of in the first 15 minutes and then go tell people what I preached about. I'd appreciate you hearing me till the last word is spoken. In John 11, we have a fairly familiar story. You remember a man named Lazarus gets sick? Well, let's pick up the uh, story in verse 12. Jesus has been speaking with his disciples and he said, Hey, our friend Lazarus is, sl- is sick. And then he waits two days before he does anything. And in verse 12, I'm sorry, let's start in verse 11. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. You remember our questions about soul sleep? Did any... Well, watch how Jesus explains this. Definitely not soul sleep. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. 
Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. For whose sake was he glad that he was not there? The disciples. Well, that's great for the disciples, right? They're going to see an outstanding miracle, aren't they? Isn't that the end of the story? How good for the disciples. Who's it bad for? Lazarus. Sometimes God will allow horrible things to happen. He said, well, he's a big God. He could change it. He could do something about it. Why me? Why is this my cross to bear? Why is this my burden? Well, maybe it's so that when God does miracles in your life, it would be evident to everybody. It would be for their benefit. How many times have you... Raise your hand if you've ever at least prayed this or thought this. Lord, I'll do anything for you. And then when He asks you to do something, it's hard to do, isn't it? So we pray, Lord, open the blind eyes. Raise the dead. Heal the sick. And that is all awesome. Unless you're the one that's been blind 38 years. Or you're the one that is vomiting and sick. Unless you're the one that is enduring some humiliating, horrible illness. So could God use something bad like that for good? Well, we might even find out that He does this an awful lot. Even things He didn't create or cause. He can use horrible, nasty, sinful things to do awesome, wonderful, beautiful things. He's in the restoring business. You ever see those shows on TV where somebody takes something like Coke cans or beer cans or something and builds a house? You know, they usually live in California and want to save whales and hug trees and that kind of stuff. And they build houses out of people's trash. God's in that kind of business. He will take the trash from your life and do something beautiful with it. He has intentionally waited for Lazarus, we're going to find out, to stink before he comes and does something good for him. And it wasn't because he didn't love Lazarus. We're going to see that very clearly. Skip on down to verse 17 so we don't have to get caught up in Thomas and his perceptions. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Not only was Lazarus born for an appointed time, he lived in an appointed place. If Lazarus had lived on top of Mount Hermon, it would have been hard for the Jews in Jerusalem to hear about what Jesus is going to do. Even the place that he lived, even the place that he's going to be buried, was an appointed place. Sometimes we act like God is blind. He has no knowledge of our circumstances and can't see what's happening to us simply because we've been allowed to be naked for a little while. Something humiliating. Something that hurts. God can't see. He can't hear. If there is a God, why has He left me in this condition? Come on now. Am I really alone in here? Nobody else has felt like that? Hmm. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet Him, but Mary stayed home. Y'all remember the verse that Jesus, that Jesus, you like this, I was trying to say Judah, the verse that Judah read just before we started the message came out of Matthew, verse, it was chapter 26, verse 12, spoke of a woman anointing Jesus' feet 
And Jesus said, oh, what she did was to prepare me for my burial. is a beautiful thing. Wherever this gospel story is told, what she did will be told. You just remember that. I told you to file it away in your mind. Here's verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Boy, that's faith, isn't it? Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. He didn't say, I'm going to raise your brother. What did he say? Your brother will rise again. Watch your response. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Isn't it interesting? That's where her faith was because she's a Jew. That's the hope of all of Israel. Even Paul declared it. Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And if whoever and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. In Jesus is found all the power of God, all the power over death. The reason Jesus was there was to display that he was the one who had come to defeat the power of the enemy. That's all good and fine. But what do you do until he arrives with that power? What do you do when you are Mary and Martha and you're crying because your brother is dead? Are you tempted to get upset with God? you tempted to act like He's ignoring you? you tempted to question His very existence because He doesn't serve you like Burger King in a five-minute time span. There's a greater purpose at work here. Now, Martha already knew that Jesus could raise the dead. She had no idea that He was about to do it, but she knew that He could. Mary's mad. She stayed home. Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Christ, Christ, anointed one, the Son of God who was to come into the world. There had been one promise from the beginning of mankind forward. Somebody's going to come from a woman. I'm going to preach about that next week. Somebody's going to come from a woman who will destroy the power of death. She believed that this was that man. Martha believed that the man standing in front of her was the promised one, the anointed one who was to come into the world. That's awesome, isn't it? But what about all the rest of the people? And what about poor Lazarus? Where is he? He's rotting right now. You don't stink unless you are rotting. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Isn't it funny? All the crowd knows how to do is complain that something's wrong. We're tempted to do this. You ever... <laughs> I've worked in the medical industry for a little while now. You want to get somebody talking who is over the age of whatever, <laughs> ask them how they feel. i got a pint of fluid in my back. The bunions on my toes are killing me. I have a headache that just won't stop. On and on and on and on. All they see is their present circumstances. No hope for any change. No thought that any ailment they have. Any problem they have might just be an opportunity for God's glory. We have a real problem seeing our nakedness as anything other than a humiliating experience. 
It's for another reason. We'll get to that. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Did Jesus know he was going to fix the problem? Yeah, he already announced it to his disciples. Why is he troubled? Troubled. The king of the universe in bodily form is troubled. Why? He's moved in spirit. Why? He's going to weep. Why? Because it hurts him to see the effects of this on everybody else. He knows he's going to fix the problem. If you ever have been tempted to think that God is turning a blind eye to your suffering, He left Israel in Egypt for 400 years, but was attentive to their cry. It just was not the day of their deliverance. In charismatic Christianity, we talk about the power to be healed. We talk about being healed. We talk about being delivered. And we have a get-the-victory attitude very often. Probably nobody in here is more guilty of that than me. There are times the victory does not come quickly. There are times it is a long, humiliating, painful struggle that reminds you every day that you are an object of mercy. When Paul complained about struggles in his life, when Paul began to request of the Lord to do something about it, do you remember what the response was? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. What is grace? Unmerited favor. That's not really the answer you want to hear when you're naked and humiliated, is it? Lord, I feel laid bare before the whole world. I've taken my cause to the judge, and he's not ruled in my favor. I've taken my cause to the unemployment board, and they've turned a deaf ear. I filed the wage claim, Lord. I stood up for what was right, and now I'm exposed. It's failed everywhere. Have you never felt like that? Have you never prayed and not seen what you were looking for? I don't know whether you've done it, but I've had the opportunity to hold somebody's hand that died while I was praying for them to be raised. That was not the most victorious day in my life. So what are all of these experiences for? Is it because he loved Martha but didn't love Mary? I didn't read it. But verse 2 of chapter 11 says, This Mary, whose brother Lazarus lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet. How on earth could we have written about that in John 11? It hasn't happened till John 12. How on earth could we have written about that? This woman's love for the Lord was legendary. The Scripture that Judah read out of Matthew said that wherever the Gospel story was told, what she did for Him would be told. Now here we are retelling the Gospel story. And when John's writing it some 30 years after it occurred, the people already knew. They'd already heard. So he identified this Mary as the one who had done that beautiful thing. I assure you it's not because he didn't love them that he waited. Whatever you struggle with, I assure you it's not a lack of God's love in your life. Is His grace sufficient, though? Is the favor that He's already shown you, is that enough? Now, I'm not telling you not to want your brother to be raised. I'm not telling you to enjoy your weakness. I'm asking you if His mercy that He's already displayed in your life is enough to give you hope and carry you through. Verse 33, 35 rather, 34. 
How about 33? <laughs> when Jesus, it's really hard to preach with this boom mic obscuring my view of the Scripture, by the way. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. Still not understanding. Loved him, past tense. If they had understood what was going on, they would have said, See how he loves him. We see victories in people's life and we talk about how God loves them and how God favors them. But like Job's friends, when we see struggles and valleys in people's life, what do we do? <laughs> God loved them. <laughs> but they've obviously done something wrong. We have a tendency to view victory as only the high emotional experiences with the Lord. Friends, that's not where victory is born. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind man have kept him from dying? That's a reasonable question. What's the answer to it, saints? Yes, certainly he could. What conclusion are you forced to come to then? He didn't want to. Why? Why would God let a friend of his die? Don't you love all the analogies you hear from people? Would God kill a son? You know, or they say uh, about persecution or suffering, would God beat his bride? You know, the standard response to that is, would God kill a son? We have real trouble conceptualizing how any negative thing could be used in our life as something good. It's hard to see how being separated... I was 18 years old. Salvation to me meant that I would separate from every friend that I had ever had. That become an object of ridicule and scorn that my own family might not understand. And because David Koresh was on the news every day, that I might be identified by some as cultic or fanatic. How could God use any of that for good? Well, He began to build into me a character that really didn't care what my family or my friends thought. I wanted to be pleasing to God. He's not through with that building project yet. But I had to be willing to be naked in that very moment. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. You ever been backed into a hole? You could barely see daylight? Then right about the time you thought you could see the way out, somebody rolled the stone across the entrance? Hopeless. Desperate. No chance of survival. No chance. The most humiliating experience in your life, and now like Elijah, you want to lay down under a tree? Pull your cloak over your eyes and beg God to let you die. I don't know whether you've been there or not, whether that's an exaggeration for you, but certainly you can understand it. There are experiences that we encounter in life that are so painful, they feel like you can't survive it. Is it fair to say that this has happened to Lazarus? Well, yeah, the man's been dead four days. Has anybody in here been dead four days? Uh-uh. Probably not, huh? I was actually dead for about 18 years. And I heard the voice of God and I rose again. But my body wasn't dead. I actually still carry around the dead guy I was born into. But, boy, that's confusing, isn't it? Don't you love when Christians throw around Christian speak in front of lost people? They have no idea what you're talking about. They stare at you and the gnats and flies are beginning to circulate around their open mouth. They look like a monkey staring at a computer. 
No idea what you're talking about. We would do very well just to say what we mean rather than use Christianese. Verse 39 says, Take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. You can sit in a humiliating, horrible situation so long that everybody is worried if we uncover it, if we begin to deal with the root of the problem. If after 20 years we finally get to the source of the problem, that stench is going to offend everybody. I knew a man who was an elder in a church that after 23 years of salvation had still never been baptized. That's a real problem, isn't it? Because the Word tells you to be baptized. And every year that went by, it became harder for him to get baptized. Do you know why? It was one more year he hadn't done what he was supposed to do. Do you know how I assume that the devil tricked him into this lie? How humiliating, how embarrassing in his high and lofty position as an elder, somebody ordained into ministry, a respected Bible college graduate and seminary graduate who had recently earned his Ph.D. in a theological subject. How humiliating for him to go be baptized, not as a rededication, but as the first time. And yet that could have been the most powerful moving experience of his life. There's a bad odor. We can't uncover that. If we talk plainly about the real root of the problem, if we talk plainly about the sin that's never been dealt with, Lord, that'll stink. We can't do that. Jesus didn't seem to be dissuaded by our argument, did He? Verse 40. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of, the God, of God? The problem is not the odor. The problem is not how long you've been in the situation. The problem is not how badly you stink. That's all we can see. We get surrounded by our circumstances and we're overcome. It's humiliating, Lord. It's horrible. It's bad. You've forgotten about me. You don't care. The church has forgotten about me. They don't care. <laughs> Working on my volume, huh, Matthew? The problem is that God has said if we believe, we would see, future tense, the glory of God. Wherever you are this morning, no matter how long you've been there or how many stones have been rolled over the entrance, you need to understand God has said you will see His glory. At some point, we decide to quit wallowing in self-pity and start standing up in the authority God's given us. It doesn't deny the circumstances. Abraham knew that his body was as good as dead and that his wife's womb was dead. And yet he reasoned in his heart that God was able to perform what He promised so he didn't waver. That's what faith is. Faith is not saying there is no odor. Faith is not saying He hasn't been dead. Faith is saying all of those things are true. But God promised me I'd see His glory, so I push forward. Verse 41, So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Isn't that funny? He hadn't even spoken yet. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. But he's not even prayed out loud. You know, the Scripture says he knows what you need before you ask. So why then are you praying? You need to hear what you need. So that when he answers the problem, you knew it was from him. He knows what you need before you ask. He is not unaware of your present situation. 
What is really funny is when you look back at the course of your life, something that was horrible and humiliating when you were Judah's age, by the time you're Mandy's age, really doesn't seem like a big thing. And maybe when you go from Mandy's age to Bobby's age, doesn't seem like a big thing at all. You know, this is because our experiences teach us something. It'll pass. <laughs> Today's humiliation is tomorrow's glory. Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I knew that You always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of those people standing here, that they may believe that You sent me. I want you to get this. He let Lazarus die for the benefit of his disciples. <laughs> he shows up late, four days late, and he prays. Not for him, not for the Father, but for the benefit of the people that are there. Again, who is all this good for? Everybody who's seeing and hearing. But what about the people who are having their hearts ripped out over the event? When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. You find out that all of the gospel is summarized in this one story. No matter how deep, dark your cave is, no matter how many stones have been rolled over the entrance and how obscure the ray of light is creaking through the rocks in the cave, there is one voice worth hearing speaking to you, and it's not all the people around saying you stink. It's not all the people around assuming that all that can be done is mourning. It's the voice of Jesus who says, Come out and take off your grave clothes. See, when we wallow in our problems long enough, we do begin to stink. The very clothing that we begin to wear as a mantle around us becomes something that reminds us of the former life. I was joking with somebody yesterday evening. We were talking about taking pictures. There are no pictures that I know of in our family photo albums between about the age 15 and 18 for me unless I'm wearing long sleeves and jeans, save two that I found later. You know why? Those pictures reminded me of grave clothes when I got born again. I did something that really is not very smart. I wished I hadn't done it. Wish somebody older and wiser around me had stopped me from doing it. Threw it all away. And I threw away my actual clothes and my CDs and my posters and my magazines and everything that I could think of that would remind me of the old life because I wanted to be holy. Is all that wrong? Is it wrong to do that and to cover your truck with Christian bumper stickers and carry a Bible with you everywhere you go and wear T-shirts that talk about Jesus? It's not wrong but it doesn't address the real problem. I'm housed in a dead guy that needs to be stripped away. That only happens one way. God has got to put you in situation after situation that is harmful and humiliating to the flesh and deliver you from it again and again and again. That may seem kind of harsh. Let's talk about that process some. Go with me to Exodus 25. While you're turning to Exodus 25, I want to read you something. Hey, Matthew, can you tend to this issue here? Y'all turn into Matthew or to Exodus 25? I read this passage this morning about a woman named Betty Stam. She was a missionary. Very good, Matt. That works. 
says, in 1925, Betty Stam said, Lord, I give up my own purposes and plans, all my own desires and hopes and my ambitions, and I accept your will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to you to be yours forever. That's awesome, isn't it? I didn't finish it, but let me go ahead and read that again. I want you to hear these words. Lord, I give up my own purposes and plans, all of my desires, hopes, and ambitions, and accept Your will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to You to be Yours forever. I hand it over to Your keeping all of my friendships, all of the people whom I love are to take second place in my heart to you. Fill me and seal me with your Holy Spirit. Work out your whole will in my life at any cost, whatever it may be, for now and forevermore. To me, to live is Christ. So be it unto God and amen. That's beautiful, isn't it? What easy words to say. If she had only said those, I wouldn't be reading this to you this morning. But nine years later, the Chinese communists killed her for her testimony about Jesus. She made good on her promise. Christians, we talk such a good game. But when you find yourself surrounded by the dark tomb, it's hard sometimes to make good on our promise. When I remember this woman, Betty Stam. One phrase comes to mind, at any cost. Do you really want the Lord's will at any cost? Or do you only want it as long as there's a little bit of glory in it for you? As long as it's not too hard, too humbling, too humiliating. Why was Saul, a man changed to have a heart after God, willing to lay naked for a day and night prophesying? He really didn't care about himself at that point. All he wanted was to get the Word of God that was in him out to whoever was listening. Why did David dance in his underwear? Why did Jesus find Peter stripped to his underwear fishing so many times? Why are all these naked stories in the Bible? It's when man feels really stripped, bare and naked, that God has an opportunity to do something in his life. You all in Exodus 25? I'm not. <laughs> I'm going to turn there and I'm going to show you a couple pictures that those listening on CD or over the net just... They'll have to get here at some point, won't they? I love them. I love our internet audience. But there's just no way to do this. What do you see up there on the screen? Matt, flip that light, would you? That's the Torah. Isn't that neat? I just thought I'd show you this because I was showing you a picture. This Torah dates back to the time of Jesus. It's a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. One of the only ones in existence. You know what? Matches letter for letter and word for word with the Greek Septuagint and all of the other copies of the Torah. And it survived till our day. You know what that lets you know? That a promise written in English and the NIV or whatever translation you use in the book of Isaiah was recorded accurately. It's the same one that Jesus was referring to. Isn't that neat? That's not what I'm preaching about, though. We're preaching about taking off your clothes. Well, I had pictures up here. I couldn't help but throw this one. What is that? Nick, you know what that is. That's the temple. On the right, there's a staircase. Do you see how narrow it is? On the left is a very wide staircase. 
much, 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 much wider than the entrance. One is the entrance, one is the exit. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. See, these things I'm telling you about taking off your clothes, about removing the dead guy's garments, it's about stripping away the outer facade that we all have. And it's hard, but the entrance into the kingdom of God is very narrow. It's very hard. It requires you to lay aside pride. It requires you to lay aside your own hopes, desires, those kind of things. It's difficult. Friends, it gets narrower and narrower. At first, it just requires you to throw away CDs and things that remind you of the old life, like clothes. But it eventually requires you to lay aside your very flesh, its desires and what it wants to do. Narrow is the way that leads to life. This is where I wanted to show you this. Anybody know what kind of tree that is? How about if I show you this one? Oh, or that one, or that one. All four of those are the same kind of tree. Those are acacia trees. Oh, that's not an acacia tree. That's a camel. You see, there's a little entrance there, and then it uh, provides shade all around you. That one provides shade. Nice big mushroom-looking tree. That one's not fully developed yet. You see what that is? What are those? Thorns. What's on this bark in this picture are those thorns. That's a close-up view of the tree. Now, why might you like a tree that provides shade all around you like that one picture with a very narrow entrance if you're in the middle of the hot desert? Why might you like that? It's not a trick question. Why? It'll cool you off. It'll protect you from the heat of the sun. Why do you think this tree has these thorny outer parts on it? What's that do for the tree? It does what? Keeps things from eating it, right? Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Those are big thorns, aren't they? Go in Exodus 25. In Exodus 25, verse 10. Everybody knows what the Ark of the Covenant is, right? Are there any other names for the Ark of the Covenant? What else is it called in the Bible? Oh, wow, y'all are quiet. I've put you to sleep this morning. I'm preaching about taking off your clothes and can't keep you awake. <laughs> I'm teasing. I know you're awake. The Ark of God. That's commonly its name. The Ark of the Covenant. There's one other name. It's what it's called here in Exodus 25. The Ark of the Testimony. You know why? The law that God had written on stone commandments was in this ark. The testimony of God's character was in it. You know what else was in it? Huh? Well, that would be the law that was written on those two stone tablets. What else? A rod. Aaron's staff that budded. Anybody know what else? There's one more. A jar of manna. This box contains these three things as a witness, as a testimony about God, about God bringing life from dead objects like Aaron's staff, about God giving you food where there is no food, teaching you to depend upon the Word of God rather than the natural circumstances around you like the jar of manna, about God revealing His righteous character in you, His law. That's the ark of God's testimony. Well, let's read about that ark. Verse 10, Have them make a chest of acacia wood. 
That's those pictures that I'm showing you, the thorns that are up on the screen right now. Two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out. Make a gold mounting around it. You can stop there for a second. We're going to read the rest of this. Think about that. He gave them the kind of wood to make this out of. It was a wood off of trees that looked like this. Right? How many trees do you think you'd have to cut down, hewn by hand, to get a box as big as this? Hmm? Get those boards perfectly straight? What would you have to do to the wood? very first thing you'd have to do is contend with this bark. Why does the tree have this bark in these thorns? To protect it so things don't eat it. What's useful about this tree other than making the Ark of the Covenant out? Well, it's got all this shade. It protects you from the elements. Mankind does whatever it takes to be protected from the elements that are our peers, the people that are around us. We hide in shade to stay away from the light that shows who we really are. And inwardly we're scared always. If they find out, if they really know who I am, they won't want me. But what God requires of us is not just coming out of the grave. That's being born again. Coming out of the grave is being born again. The rest of your life, you are stripping away something from you. The grave clothes. Just like this tree. If you're going to use this tree for God's purpose, the very first thing that you have to do is strip away the outer facade. In other words, you have to take its clothes off. You have to make it bare. You have to take away all the things that are there to cover and to protect, to keep you from seeing what is really inside of it. That would be humiliating for the tree, wouldn't it? If the tree were a person, you might say, why would God do this to me? Why am I left in this situation? When I look to my left and right, I see the others are providing shade just fine. Why is it that I have to endure this? And how long is God going to... There must be no God. All of those crazy thoughts begin to go through your mind. Why is this tree being stripped, though? To be used for God's purpose. Whatever valleys a Christian encounters, whatever hardship a Christian encounters, for one purpose, you're being prepared to be used for God's service. After the acacia wood was stripped, what happened next? Had to be overlaid inside and out. Overlaid inside and out with something. What was it? Pure gold. Not 24 karat gold. Not 10 karat, not 14 karat, none of those things. The purest of gold. Gold in the Bible is God's divinity. He wants nothing less than to strip you of the outer facade that keeps people at a distance. It's that part of you that people say, oh, well, that's just the way they are. It's the part of you that wears certain clothes, drives certain cars, lives in certain houses, walks a certain way, talks a certain way, tells certain kinds of stories for no other reason than you want people to view you a certain way. God has got to get to a place in our lives where He can freely strip any part of that away that He chooses to. Like that woman said, at any cost, Lord, no matter how deep you go, it's worth it because the end result is I'm going to be overlaid outside and in with the purest divinity of God. By the way, how do you get gold to stick to wood? You have to hammer it in. So don't get the idea that this is a pleasant, fun process. What makes it pleasant is because you realize it's for the glory of God. 
you recognize that God's working in your life is for the glory of God. That's the right perspective when you're in the tomb. Wow, I'm going to hear Jesus' voice and He will bring me out because this is for the glory of God. And you know what? When you get stripped in one area, when you get delivered out of the tomb in one area, you know what you do? You go on taking off grave clothes, being stripped in other areas. This is a lifelong process. It never finishes. And the surest way to find yourself outside of the unmerited favor of God that we call grace, the surest way to find yourself outside of grace is to act as if the process is completed in you. To begin to build walls between you and your neighbor. I don't have that problem. I was stripped of that years ago. In fact, all you can see in me now is the pure divinity of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said when you build that kind of wall between you and your neighbor, you've just built a ceiling between you and God. And that's right. In Christianity, we don't eat our own. We recognize we are all in the process of being stripped and overlaid with gold. And what's the purpose in it? What happens? You become a body containing the testimony of God that He takes your death and makes life, that He takes your lack and brings life, the manna, that He takes your character, your broken law, and He puts His character on it. That's the testimony. You are an ark of God. Let's keep reading in Exodus 25. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out. Make a gold mounting around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet. With two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. It has how many feet? Four. Remember I taught you about the Ten Commandments last week? They're like chapter headings for all the rest of the law. How many of them dealt with God's relationship with man? Four. Your foundation in your relationship with God in this stripping and this process of being built into something, what you stand on is the fact that you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. So whether your neighbors are stealing from you, whether they're tempting you to commit adultery, whether they're bearing false witness against you, or whether they're coveting everything that you have, what you're standing on, the four mountings that you stand on, is your relationship with God. Everything else is secondary. Had two cast rings on each side, right? What are these cast rings for? We're going to slide poles made from the very same stuff through them. Your testimony is supposed to be carried around on the shoulders of men. God's presence is supposed to be carried around in your life by men. That's why when David tried to bring the ark into Jerusalem, he did it the wrong way, and a man gave his life for it. The ark of God is supposed to be carried on something specifically. If we have four rings and two poles then what we have is a covenant based on man's relationship to God being carried around as a testimony for all to see. Two is the number of covenant in the Bible. Two poles. Four is the number of God's relationship to man. But let's keep going. The poles are to remain in the rings on this ark. They are not to be removed. Why can't you remove the poles? This is another real problem that human beings have. Anybody in here ever been delivered of something that you're glad you were delivered from. Somebody. You don't say it out loud, but raise your hand. All right, well, we've got at least one in here that's been delivered from something that they didn't like, some part of grave clothes. We have a tendency in the kingdom. We camp out. 
I was delivered from thus and so, as if the work is completed. I was saved on that day, and we forget that we are being saved and will be saved. We act like it was a one-time event never to be repeated again. The ark had to have the poles in it all of the time because it moved constantly. This process in your life of stripping and being overlaid inside and out and becoming a a vessel fitting for the Lord's presence is one that requires constant movement on your part to do what Paul calls staying in step with the Spirit. And if you thought what he required of you last year was hard, smile, a new year's coming and it's going to get harder. But you know what? With that increased difficulty comes increased anointing and power. What single man other than Jesus do you admire most mentioned in the New Testament? Paul. That came out without any hesitation. You didn't even have to sit around and debate. I love Peter. He may be a pope to some. But for some reason, in your eyes, Paul is raised highest. Why? He suffered and endured the most. But in that, God's grace was sufficient. And his power was made perfect in Paul's weakness. So we admire him for it, but we don't like it when it happens in our lives. Why is that? I want to read you something else that I was reading this morning. I love these little books. A wealthy graduate chose to live frugally in a single room, cooking his own meals and denying himself the benefits of wealth. That takes power, doesn't it? How many times have you promised yourself you weren't going to go out to eat this month? You're going to save on your budget and you weren't going to eat anything outside the house. Anybody in here ever have trouble keeping that promise? Yeah, I do. I don't care what it is that you tried to deny that the flesh likes. It's hard. The flesh has a very powerful voice in your life. Your job is for your spirit who knows what is right and your soul who reasons and acts as a bridge between your body and your spirit to gang up upon that flesh. For your spirit who knows what is right to set your will, your mind, your emotions, your soul on what is right so that you can force your flesh to be the slave of your spirit and your soul. That's the Ham, Shem, and Japheth teaching. That's your job. Well, this kid does it right. A wealthy university graduate chose to live frugally in a single room cooking his own meals and denying himself the benefits of wealth. As a result, he was able to give a large amount of money and time to God's work. When his relatives asked him to explain his actions, this quote appeared in his letter to them. The letter is actually what I was reading. Gladly would I make the floor my bed, a box my chair, and another box my table, rather than men should perish for lack of hearing about Jesus. Earlier in the story about Lazarus, Jesus waited for the disciples' benefit. But who had to suffer for that? Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Later in the story, God's already heard Jesus. Already heard Him, but He's speaking out loud for whose benefit? For all the people that are there. But who's still dead and in the grave and suffering? Lazarus. He's not really suffering in the grave, but in the analogy, you understand what I'm saying. We need to develop an attitude that not only says, at any cost, your will be done in my life. At any cost, strip away from me everything that I might be overlaid with gold. But we also need to say, hey, I would rather do without that others would be blessed. Those things are 
loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor is yourself. When you say, I'll do without so that somebody else can have. This is what makes the body of Christ real. It's what makes the body of Christ worthwhile. It's the only thing that makes a church worth going to. It's certainly not the preaching. And you can all say amen to that. What it is, is when we are loving each other. When we're being real before each other all of the time. With no facades. You ever met somebody and at first you had one image of them? The longer you got to know them, that image changed? Why is that? Because we all have this thorny outer exterior. Sometimes, when I say thorns, it implies rough or hard. Sometimes that's not it. You do everything that you can to get people to like you. But that's a facade. It's an exterior. It's not really you. You know when I know this is working in my life the most powerfully? Anybody guess? With my wife. When I will quickly say something kind to Nick or to Bobby or to Charlotte, but when put in the same situation with my own wife, can't find those same kind words, I realize even in the church I've learned to cover myself with fig leaves. That's not really who I am. I still need God to hammer His goodness into me. See, man's been in the business of making his own covering since the moment we got into sin. From the moment we got into sin, we're covering ourselves with fig leaves. But what did God do with those fig leaves? He threw them away and He gave them a covering of His choosing. We spend our whole lives trying to cover ourselves with what amounts to grave clothes. And God will do whatever it takes to peel back the layers so that He can get to the heart of who you are, what you struggle with, and who you can be for Him and hammer His goodness into you. It can be a long, arduous process or it can be instantaneous in some area. But it's a lifelong process. Saints, what I'm hoping that you'll get from this message and the reason that I took the time to share with you this is we are a work in progress. God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That means as we interact in this body, as we love one another, some things that we say and do are going to be a stripping process in your life, and some things that we say and do are going to be a hammering process in your life, and some things that we say and do are solely going to be carrying you around so that people can see the testimony that God has accomplished in you. But you've got to be willing to go through all of the process. That means if I sing out of tune one Sunday, you don't stand up and walk out. That means if you sing out of tune one Sunday, I don't give up on you. See, this is what makes the gospel go round. It's when we love each other enough to be bare before the Lord and allow His work in our life. But it's hard because it's not what you've been trained to do. You've been trained to hide your inner feelings. You've been trained to wear an exterior that causes you to be viewed as something. You know what everybody in Christ's number one goal is to be viewed as? Godly. Are you scared to let people know something about your character that hasn't quite been thoroughly hammered with God yet? Well, then you're shutting God off from being able to fix that area in your life. We do everything differently in this church than the rest of the churches. On purpose, we don't lift ourselves up. On purpose, we don't allow you to try to view us more highly than you should. You know why? Because that would be setting ourselves up for a fall. I've watched it happen time and time again, and you can read books about it happening throughout history. What we need to do is be willing to be stripped of our old selves and hammered new with God. Everybody's fine about talking about that in the past tense. 
That happened to me in 1993. That happened to me 10 years ago. Nobody's fine about talking about that happening to us today. Because in some way you think that might lessen people's view of you. Get over it. It's for our benefit if we see you in a grave, but Jesus bring you out. Get over it. It's for our benefit if there's a small delay in your immediate healing so that we might have an opportunity to put trust in God. Do you understand the perspective? So the next time you see somebody locked in a tomb, do you go, oh, wow, look what a horrible, bad, mean person they are. They stink. Or do you go, this may be done solely for the purpose of me seeing the resurrection that's going to occur in their life and know that it can be done in the dark, entangled, entombed areas of my life. All of you are proud of saying you met Jesus, right? We're closing. When Jesus announced His ministry in Galilee, how did He announce it? Brad, you can quote it. I know you can. How did He announce it? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to who? To the poor. Who else? Captives. So all of you have heard Jesus' voice, right? What does that mean about you? You were poor, you were blind, you were a captive. But you're in the process of being healed, delivered, set free. And that process is not done until we go to be with Jesus or He comes here to be with us. Let's not any of us think more highly of ourselves than we should. Instead, let's find our righteousness in Him. Let's view our hardships as an opportunity to get naked in the Lord's presence that He might clothe us with something else. Last Scripture and we close. Is that all right? Turn with me to Ephesians. This is one of the Scriptures you can find in almost any book of the Bible, but I wanted to read it out of Ephesians. Verse 22 of chapter 4. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You were taught to do those things, but they are happening now. He's writing to Christians. If this was a one-time event, he wouldn't have to be saying it to them. They would have already experienced it. Our whole life we are taking off the old clothes so that God can put new clothes on us. The song Matthew sang in worship said, I may not be uh, clothed in the garments of princes and I may not sit at king's tables. You are my portion, you are my portion. The truth is, if you don't have those things now, it's because God desires to give you His garments and sit you at His table. It's just a process that you go through. Next time you're in a dark hole, you look and think, it's for the glory of God and I will come out. My brother Brad, lively, not my brother Brad Hole, although Brad Hole often exhibits this behavior too, used to pray something that made me very uncomfortable. And we're going to pray it here in a moment. You don't have to, but I'm going to pray it and I'm going to ask you to join me. He used to pray, Lord, I'm willing to be humiliated that you would be glorified. And I'm telling you, every time he said it, my skin crawled. I thought, he doesn't know what he's saying, Lord. He knew exactly what he was saying. He was just willing. You ever had somebody tell you, don't pray for patience? Ever had somebody tell you, not pray for something because of what God might do in your life? What cowardice. I want everything that God would do in my life. I want to learn to take off my exterior that I might be 
laden with God's gold. Stand up, let's pray.